Pastor Mike, thank you, bud, for your leadership with our students and in our church. If you have a Bible today, let's go to Matthew chapter 9. We're working our way line by line through the gospel of Matthew. And uh, I was told years ago to quit talking about him in church. Um, but he's here again. He's usually here. But my 24-year-old son is sitting over here to my right. And back in the day, his favorite character was a character by the name of Bob the Builder. Anybody remember that guy, Bob the Builder, can he fix it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. And then I think maybe it became Handy Manny or something along the way. But Bob the Builder was the stuff, man, because he had all the machines and he had all the tools. And there wasn't any problem that Bob the Builder and uh, Scoop, Rust, and Diggy, whatever those machines' names were, there wasn't a problem that they could not fix. Now, do you remember being at that age where it was young enough that you had no concept that there was any problem that could not be fixed. You just knew as a, as a kid, whatever happened, whatever went wrong, whatever was broken, there was somebody that would be able to fix that. Some superhero would come flying out of nowhere and save the day for you. When you were little and you might have broken something, you'd take it to your mom or your dad and you'd say, fix it. Right? And, and they would fix it. Or you'd be outside playing, you'd fall down, you'd skin your knee, you'd get a boo-boo, you come crying, little precious little teardrops rolling down your little chubby cheeks. And somebody would step in, right, and they would fix it. Then you got started playing video games, and your, your, your character, he, he, he dies in the video game, but you could fix that. You just started all over, just sort of reset it, and then you got older. And the heavy realities of life began to fall on you. And you start to encounter things that were broken that you could not, nor did it seem anybody could fix those things. Mom and dad's marriage broke and it didn't get fixed. Grandpa passed away and unlike a video game, you just couldn't start him over. Some of you even today, you're facing some hard realities. Some of you in this room, you're facing things you have been perhaps even for some time, some situations in your life that they just don't seem fixable. You know, pastors, we're not immune to that either. In, in my own personal life, I've experienced, like you, my fair share of things that I hoped would be different. I prayed they would be different. But they didn't come out any different. They weren't changeable. They weren't fixable. In my professional life as a pastor, I, I see that a lot. I've walked with a lot of people who've gone through the, the hurt and the pain and the brokenness of having things go on in their life that they, they just couldn't fix. And it seemed that nobody could fix those things. Something had broken and it just seemed to be beyond repair. Listen, life can be terribly hard. And life can be deeply hurtful, shocking disappointments, shattering heartbreak, shaking with fear, fuming with frustration. You ever been there? I bet you have. When we're experiencing these things that can't be fixed, we run the gamut of those emotions and it seems that all of our heroes are gone. 
Nobody's coming to save the day. And our hope has turned into a, an ash heap of hopelessness. Today in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's going to introduce us to some people who were living right in that place. Some people today that I'm really kind of glad to bump into today because I certainly can relate to these people that Matthew is going to show us today. He's going to introduce us today to five people, four situations, one thing in common. Five people, four situations, one thing in common. These five people in four different situations have this in common. They all have problems that nobody could fix. I want us to look at the problems today. Number one is the problem of death. Look with me, Matthew 9, 18. We're picking up exactly where we left off last week. Matthew 9, 18 says, as he was telling them these things. This is Jesus. As Jesus was telling them these things. Okay, telling who these things? What is he telling them? Let's reset the scene. Last week, Jesus had just called a man by the name of Matthew to follow him which was scandalous because Matthew was a publicani. He was a tax collector. He was the most hated person among the Jewish people in his town of Capernaum. He had betrayed his people, turned his back on his people, cozied up with Rome so he could get rich off the backs of his own countrymen. And yet Jesus goes to him and says, follow me. Matthew takes Jesus up on that offer. Of course, he's about to lose everything now because Rome will make him pay for walking away. And as his last act as a rich man, Matthew throws a big party. And he throws this party for this purpose. He wants to invite his friends. And he describes his friends as other publicanis, other tax collectors, and sinners, right? He just was self-aware, and he knew his people. He knew his crowd. But he was inviting these people to come to this party because he wants them to meet Jesus. And so they're there in that party, and while they're there, the religious people start showing up, nosing around, asking some questions. First, it's the Pharisees, and then it's John's disciples. John the Baptist, his disciples show up, and all of these religious folks are essentially asking the same question. Why in the world is Jesus in this house? Why in the world is Jesus at a party like this, surrounded by people like this? And Jesus answered that. If you were here last week, you might remember that Jesus answered that really in a roundabout way by saying, I'm in this house to heal those who are sick with sin. I'm here in this house to give mercy to those who are in need. I'm here in this house to give joy. I'm here in this house to give new life. In verse 9, it says that Jesus was in the middle of telling the people the answer to the question the religious crowd were asking him. And he's answering that question with conversations like mercy, sacrifice, wedding feast, and fasting, and new patches, and old garments, and new wineskin, and old wineskins. He's in the middle of all that that we looked at last week. So he's telling them these things, verse 9, and suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him. This is a position of humility, a position of worship. This leader kneels down before Jesus saying, my daughter has just died. And that ends the party. Party's over. My daughter 
has just died. Well, who is this leader? Well, other gospel writers tell us that he's actually a leader in the local synagogue. If you've been to Capernaum, some of you were there with me a few weeks ago, the synagogue in Capernaum is right next door to Peter's house. Peter's house was ground zero for the ministry of Jesus in and around Galilee. So this man was a leader in the synagogue there. That means he's kind of like a person who's on staff at a church. He had some responsibility. He was in leadership. He was the person in their faith community that when people had questions, they would probably go to him. If they had a problem, they would probably go and talk to him. But now he is the one with the problem, an unfixable problem. His little girl has died. And Luke tells us that this little girl is 12 years old. Some of you I'm sensitive as I say this today because some of you have walked that path. I've not, and I pray that I'll never walk that path, but I've walked with people who've walked that path. And my observation is that's a grief like no other. That's a sorrow like no other. That's a the world is falling down on me and everything has gone dark kind of grief like no other. And this father... He's in this desperate situation. He's facing the unfixable problem of death. But I want to leave him right there for a moment. I want to look at the second problem. It's the problem of disease. The problem of disease. Skip down to verse 20. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind And touched the end of his robe, Jesus' robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. Like the synagogue ruler, this woman's desperate. Like him, she is in an unfixable situation. She has been sick with this disease the entire lifetime of the 12-year-old girl that is now deceased. She's in this desperate moment. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. She probably has something that's called menorrhagia, which is a menstrual issue. This lady has been suffering physically for 12 years. Constant cramping, unstoppable, uncontrollable bleeding. She's not only suffering physically, but Mark tells us she's suffering financially. He tells us that she's gone broke going to every credible physician, every non-credible charlatan that she could find in hopes that somebody could fix her problem. And Mark says after she's gone broke trying to find a cure, she's actually worse off now than she was before. Now on top of the physical suffering and on top of the financial suffering, she's suffering socially. Her relationships are all gone. According to the Jewish law, because she is bleeding like that, she's a person that's unclean. So if you come into contact with her, you're unclean. If you come into contact with anything she's come into contact with, you're unclean. She can't go to the synagogue, a.k.a. church. She can't hear God's word read. She can't go to the court of the women at the temple complex and worship the Lord there. She's ostracized from all of society. She's on the outside. She ranks right up there with the lepers, the outcasts. She's living all alone. And she's not only suffering physically and financially and socially, but this lady's also suffering emotionally. For 12 years, she has been incarcerated in a prison of disease, in a prison of desperation. 
The only thing that she has less of than money is hope and peace and joy. And I want to leave that lady right there for just a moment. I want to look at the third problem, death, disease. Third problem is the problem of disability. The problem of disability. Skip down to verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Listen, the only thing that these two blind men have are each other. They have no ADA resources. There's no Braille. There's there's no seeing eye dogs. Not only that, but in that day when you had something like blindness, people superstitiously sort of assumed God's punishing you. You've done something really bad. You've really angered God, and so God is punishing you. Or maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was your mama, or maybe it was your daddy. But you're under the condemnation of God. You're under the judgment of God. So not only were they struggling just to live without sight in that society, but they're also living under the oppression of suspicion, of misplaced guilt and shame. Let's leave those two men right there. Let's move on to the fourth problem. That's the problem of demons. Look at verse 32. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to Jesus. Now, this is not Jesus' first encounter with demon-possessed people, but this is a different kind of encounter with a demon-possessed person. This demon has taken control of this man and has rendered him unable now to speak. The man is trapped in his own body. He's been rendered powerless, and nobody can help him. He's got a problem that can't be fixed. Like the four other people in the three other desperate situations, he's got a problem that nobody can fix. Five people, four situations, one thing in common. Nobody can help these people. Nobody can fix their problems. That is, up until this day. Up until this day. And you may be there today in an unfixable place related to something in your life. You may be in a desperate situation today, but I'm telling you today, there's a difference-making Savior for your desperate situation. We have a difference-making Savior for our desperate situations. You say, Pastor, that's me today. In fact, that's why I'm here. That's why I came to church today. Because I don't know what else to do. I got some, something going on. It's heavy, and nobody can help me. Nobody can fix it. So, so what do I do? Well, let me give you three action steps today, all right? Number one is this. I want you to trust the power of Jesus. Trust the power of Jesus. Now, listen, I just want to read this text just straight through. We just grabbed some snippets of it, and we're going to go straight through because I want you to feel how quickly it moves I want you to feel the urgency of it. I want you to feel sort of the controlled chaos of it. Verse 18, Matthew 9. As he was telling them these things, 
Suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. And just then a woman who had suffered from from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting, crying loudly. Leave, he said, because this girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. By the way, don't ever laugh at Jesus. Laugh with Jesus often. Never, ever, ever laugh at Jesus. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area, of course. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. If you've read your Bible, there's been some amazing things throughout history that have been seen in Israel, but the people are going, we've never had... We've never had a day like this day. We've never seen anything like this. But the Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Well, what just happened here? In these quick moments, back to back to back to back, Jesus just put on display that he has power over death. And he still does. He just put on display that he has power over disease. And he still does. Jesus just put on display that he has power over disability. And he still does. And he just put on display that he has power over demons. And he still does. And I'm wondering today if the Jesus that you think you know is big enough. I wonder today if you and I aren't imagining him to be far too small from the Jesus who really is. Some of us have a concept of Jesus that is nowhere near the reality of who Jesus is as it relates to the power of Jesus. Listen, if your mindset of Jesus is he's somewhere between my happy motivational life coach and, and a big brother to me, or a good luck charm to me, then you're way off when it comes to how powerful Jesus really is. Let me try to get you a little bit closer this morning to a better understanding of the power of Jesus. All right, so if you'll just reach up, this is a little hard for some of us, and just grab a hair out of your head and just pluck it out, or off your arm, or off your neighbor's head. All right? Or out of your nose. What are you doing there? What? Put it in the, sorry, gross, put it in the palm of your hand or just imagine that you did. Now, I don't want you to think about the length of it. I want you to think about the width of that piece of hair. You with me? Think about the width of that piece of hair. 
If you could see it, what you would see is there is 100,000 atoms stretched across the width of that piece of hair. And there's a nucleus inside each of those 100,000 atoms. And inside that nucleus, there's protons and there's neutrons. And that's crazy to think about. But here's what's really crazy to think about. Is there's these little guys called electrons that are orbiting around the protons and the neutrons of the nucleus of all 100,000 of those atoms sitting across the width of that little piece of hair you're looking at right now. And the crazy thing about these electrons that are orbiting around those protons and neutrons is they are orbiting around at a speed of 1.5 million yards per second. To help you understand how fast stuff is moving across just the width of that piece of hair you're looking at right there, those electrons, if they took off right here, it would take them 18 seconds to circle the globe and land right back here again. And all that's happening right there on that little piece of strand of hair. But those electrons, as fast as they're moving in there, they're, for all practical reasons, they're, they're standing still compared to how fast the nucleus itself is rotating and revolving. The nucleus itself is revolving at something like a billion, billion revolutions per second. I have no point of reference to help you understand how fast that is. A billion, billion revolutions per second. And just across the width of that piece of hair you're looking at, You've got 100,000 simultaneous activities like that going on right now. You say, so, okay, nuclear physicist, Pastor Joel, what does this have to do with anything? A lot. Colossians chapter 1 is talking about Jesus. Watch this. For everything was created by him. Every atom and every proton and neutron and those fast-flying electrons, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. Watch it. The visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. They've all been created for his glory. For his name, for his applause. He is before all things, and watch this, and by him all things hold together. The reason there's not 99,999 atoms across the width of that piece of hair is because Jesus is holding all 100,000 atoms on the width of that piece of hair that you're holding. And he's holding every proton and neutron spinning all those electrons as fast as he is. Not just on that strand of hair, but on all your hair, on all the atoms that make up who you are. I have no idea how many that is. Probably no human number I could speak. All the atoms in this world, all the atoms in this world, all, all the atoms in this universe, he is perfectly right now directing the flight path of the most, most minute little atomic particle in every corner of our universe. He is powerful enough 
to speak all of that into existence, and he's powerful enough right now to be holding and sustaining all of that in place right now. Your heart is beating not by chance, not by accident. He's making it beat. Your brain's working not by evolutionary circumstance, but by the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Jesus is causing it to work. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Watch. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Not one electron is going rogue because Jesus is sustaining every last one in the universe. In Matthew 9, he's just giving us the tip of the iceberg about the power of Jesus. So if you're in a hard place today, a desperate place, I want you to think about the power and trust the power of Jesus. But secondly, I don't want you to only trust his power. I want you to trust his compassion. Trust the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is not just all-powerful. He not only has a power I can't comprehend, he has a compassion that is equal to his power. He has a compassion that I cannot comprehend. And that's good news because that means that this power is not cold, it's not cruel, it's not evil. It's not selfish. His power is not indifferent. The compassion of Jesus is inseparably connected to the compassion of Jesus. His power is saturated with boundless love. His power is saturated with immeasurable compassion. At least four of these five people that we're looking at here today were considered outcasts, castaways, rejects, unholy, no value. And yet you can feel the warmth, the tenderness, the gentleness, the kindness, the love, the compassion of Jesus toward them. What did he say to the woman whose trembling hand came reaching through the mass of humanity that made up that crowd that was about to crush Jesus and his disciples. What did he say to that woman whose trembling hand found the hanging tassel of his robe and just touched the very end of that? Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter. He said, I love that first sentence, Jesus turned. He turned. Everybody else had always turned too, but they turned from her. Jesus turned to her. He turned to her. For 12 years, nobody had turned to her. But Jesus spins on a dime, turns to her. And I love the next three words. And he saw her. He saw her. He took notice of her. He put his eyes on her and on her alone. And when she looked into his eyes, she saw the compassion of God. She saw love and she saw mercy. And then, on top of all that, he calls her daughter. 
Nowhere else in all the scripture do we ever see Jesus call a lady by the name daughter. He just moved her from outcast to chosen and loved child of God. And then just that fast, he goes on to Jairus' house where the funeral for this little girl has already started. Mark sheds a little more light on what happens there in the house. Mark chapter 5 verse 39 says that Jesus went in and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? They'd already hired the band, the funeral mourners, just chaotic, right? Y'all think that's kind of weird stuff. They would think it's weird that we order flowers, like dead noses smell roses or something, right? So it's just their culture. And then Jesus says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. And he took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him. That's a handful of disciples. And he entered the place where the child was. And then he took the child by the hand. And he said to her, Talita kum. Which is translated... Little girl, I say to you, get up. Or, or it could have been little lamb, either one. Almighty God in flesh, holding the hand of this little girl, bends over and gently whispers. The same mouth that the universe came flying out of when he said, let there be light. From that same one, he gently whispers, little girl, get up. He's strong enough, powerful enough to collapse our entire universe in on itself in an instant, but he is compassionate enough to tenderly touch the tiny hand of a little girl and softly whisper resurrection words in her little ear. And all of this does not drain his compassion. Mine goes dry. I have to go home. I have to back up. I have to go to sleep. I have to refuel. I have to recharge. I get compassion fatigue sometimes. But my Jesus never does. He never grows weary of us crying out to him, calling out to him, running to him in our time of need. And in the next scene, he touches the eyes of those blind men. And then he casts out the demon and restores the voice to that other man. However compassionate you think Jesus may be, I'm quite sure you're way off the mark. And so am I. He is far more compassionate and kind and caring than we can imagine. If you're in a hard place today, a desperate problem that can't be fixed, trust the power of Jesus. Trust the compassion of Jesus. Three, trust the promises of Jesus. 
trust the promises of Jesus? Should we believe from all of this that there's a healing for everybody? Should, should we believe from all this that all things are going to be fixed? Are we all to experience a miracle like this? No. At least not in this life. But these are reminders to us. These are signposts to us. Pointing us to a future reality that is coming. A future reality that will be the most beautiful and glorious explosion of the unrestrained power of Jesus and the unrestrained compassion of Jesus. Simultaneously exploding together to create a brand new reality according to the promise of Jesus where all things are made new. See, these miracles are for more than just the present moment that they're happening in. These miracles are about hope for the future. Jesus has promised He has promised to restore every single atom and proton and a neutron and electron and to restore all of creation to a new, sinless, painless, tearless, deathless reality. The point, I think, of these miracles that Matthew's giving us here are to remind us that God has not abandoned us. Nor will he ever abandon us. He will keep his promise. To make all things new. Only Jesus has the power to reverse sin's curse. Only Jesus has the compassion to care enough to do something about sin's curse. And only Jesus has promised to reverse sin's curse. Now I know right now that may not change your situation. It may not change the challenge, the difficulty. It may not change the reality of the pain that you're living with right now. But That pain you're living with right now is a reminder that we're still under the curse of sin. But that pain you're living with is also a reminder that that will not be the case for much longer. It will not always be like it is now. Because Jesus is far more powerful than you think. He's far more compassionate than you think. And his promises are more sure than you can imagine. So God, we bow before you in awe, Jesus, of who you are, limitless, boundless power and compassion. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe today you're desperate. Man, you've been trying and looking for answers, for a solution, some way to fix it. And maybe you're here today because you're finally considering trusting God. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Here's how much he loves you. He would stand in line for 12 years waiting for you to turn and to trust him. 
And today He's waiting for you to do just that. He's waiting for you today to turn and to trust that He is all-powerful. To trust that He is all-compassionate. He cares like none other. Not even close. And to trust His promises. Immutable. Unstoppable. Promises. That God has made. To you. He's waiting today. For you to trust Him. Man, He loves you. He cares for you. Just turn today. God, convince people today that there's nothing too great, too difficult for you. There is nothing too ugly, too messed up, too marred for you. There's nothing that's going to stop you from doing what you've told us you're going to do. Convince us today. In Jesus' name, let's stand. You want to worship God. And maybe worshiping God today looks like getting around these steps or on these chairs with your face in them, praying, making that an altar. Maybe it's lifting your voices in your hands, worshiping God. Maybe it's putting your arm around somebody today and just saying, hey, we're going to look to the Lord together in this. He is good. He is powerful. His promises are sure. Let's just enjoy the Lord. Let him blow you away today with his great love for you.